welcome everybody to another one of our financial well-being podcasts. My name is David Lloyd, broadcaster, writer, actor, thingamabob, and I'm joined here by Chris Budd. Chris. Hello. I'm, today I'm mainly a man in a big jumper. Is that right? <laughs> it's a fine jumper. Is it a Christmas jumper? It was my Christmas present, yes. Very nice. It's a sort of multicoloured thing, like a patchwork, a, a coat of many colours. It suits you, Chris. It's... Thank you. I have been accused of being a tree hugger a couple of times over the Christmas period, but... Uh... Nothing wrong with... Have you ever hugged a tree? I haven't. I have. Have you really? I have actually hugged a tree, How yes. How did it go? Yeah. It was great. It was, did she mind? She didn't mind at all. No, no. <laughs> just, just stood there and took it. <laughs> so we, we're, we're recording this particular podcast uh, in the first week back from the Christmas holidays. And uh, are you having a, a bit of time off from your drinking? Uh, yes, I am. I am. I'm not going to go as far as saying that I'm having a dry January, but, but I'm taking it a day at a time and we'll just see how we go. Oh, good for you. I'm having a dry January. Mm. Uh, dry white wine, dry cider, dry gin. <laughs> And we are joined today, you may hear him chortling along in the background there, because for, for the first time ever, it's a record for the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. Chris Budge made a joke that's made everybody laugh, <laughs> <laughs> including uh, our producer, Tom, Tom Morris, who normally sits here. Uh, say hello, Tom. Hello, everyone. Yep. So Tom is going to be joining in with us a little bit later on when we talk about some of the things we're going to be talking about, which are, Chris? Well, we're going to talk about uh, challenging some of the traditional thinking about money. And Tom is here for two reasons. One is because Tom is 29, so still, in his view, the right side of 30. If his phone goes and there's a sound of panic, it's because his wife is due to give birth to their first child about half an hour ago, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Today. <laughs> so um, there's a slight nervousness in the air, I think it's fair to say, David. But who better to talk about the worries of money than somebody who's about to have a child. <laughs> you paint such a lovely picture. <laughs> it's all right. You've only got... Well, my son's 28 now, and uh, he still comes to me for money. So <laughs> that um, will never change. But Tom is a chartered financial planner and is a very uh, clever young man. I will say that to his face quite happily, as long as he doesn't ask me for a pay rise. Um, and so I thought it would be really good to get his insight as we start talking about challenging some of the traditional ideas about money, busting a few myths. So... The idea of this chat is we're just going to go through a few things that people traditionally think about money in order to help create more financial options. Now, you'll remember, David, that in the Financial Wellbeing book, financial options is one of the five areas uh, that are key to increasing financial well-being. And I think it's one of the harder areas to really pin down. How do you create more financial options? Now, the obvious response would be, to have more money. If we had more money, we'd have more options. And that's often the case, but it isn't always the case. And I thought we would say, if we didn't have the choice of having more money, then how do you create more financial options? And one of those is to perhaps change a few of the assumptions and the way that we look about the world in order to look at things differently. So before we go on to our discussion, let's, as ever, have a few of your tweets. Uh, we always welcome your views, your inputs. Uh, our Twitter handle is at FinWellbeing, so please feel free to send in any thoughts that you have. Uh, we've got a couple here from non-financial people, actually, rather than the IFAs that we often have, maybe because it's been Christmas, they've all had some time off. So <laughs> the first one comes from at Gavin P. Cox. Uh, and he echoed the thoughts of several people when he tweeted, we're being taught to love possessions and use people instead of love people and use possessions. 
I mean, that great line. Oh, I'm just going to sit and let that one sink in for a while. <laughs> Peace he, out. He's a wise one, clearly. Yeah. No, that is true. That, that is very, very true. The, the other line that we've started using in Ovation, in our financial planning company, is that we should be using money to accumulate life and not the other way around. Similar Ooh, I principle. think we'll move on to discuss that perhaps in a minute. Steve Wilson at I'm Steve Wilson has a bee in his bonnet about pensions. He says, not saving for retirement per se, but locking it into a pension vehicle, money then dependent on government whims. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to that one because a few people over the years have talked about um, not being happy about pensions, so we'll, we'll, we'll cover that one. We did get a few tweets from financial advisors as well, but rather than using our financial advisor slot as we often do, this time we're going to just drop these in as we go through our conversation. Excellent. So, uh, where do we start with all of this then, Chris? OK, let's get a bit controversial, let's get a bit ranty. Um, <laughs> but before we do get stuck in, I just would say that many of the points we're going to talk about, this is a fairly open forum here, so the three of us are going to feel free to get out anything that we think should be clarified, changed, viewed differently. And as they say on that other favourite podcast of mine, Wittertainment, other opinions are available. And we'd like to hear them. So, uh, if we say anything that you disagree with today, Please let us know on the normal channels, as we said on Twitter, at FinWellBeing or contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. OK, so the first thing we're going to get off our chest is the old idea that money makes you happy or, for that matter, that money makes you unhappy. Both are cliches, both are true. But if people are obsessed with the idea that they need to accumulate wealth to get happy, is this a good thing? Well, interestingly, I tend not to worry too much about things. You know, life has its ups and downs. The one thing that does keep me awake at night is worrying about money. But I don't worry about money in the same way that I used to, because I've probably just about reached the point now where no matter how much I might worry about it, I've probably got enough. So I guess the thing that I worry about is, is, is have I got enough to do what I want to do with it today, as opposed to what I'm going to be able to do with it in 15 or 20 years' time. But that has got two reasons behind that, I would suggest. One is that you have a certain amount of financial wealth. Yeah. Uh, secondly, you're a bit older. Yeah. Tom, however, yeah. neither of those would apply, I no. suspect. <laughs> no, <laughs> unfortunately not. Now, it might be the time to mention the pay rise, I think. Yeah, well, <laughs> isn't it just? Speaking to friends, similar, similar age... Oh, phone's ringing. The phone phone's clear. ringing. It's Lindsay Hang on. on. The phone. <laughs> Hello. Can you pick up oh, some milk? Oh, <laughs> what? So, just just to let our listeners know, my wife has just uh, called up and she starts off with, "Oh, don't worry, don't panic. It's not what you think it is. Do carry on. <laughs> You're not going into labour. Okay. Oh." Uh, the nation has breathed a sigh of relief. Well, cancel our order of cigars. <laughs> you, you... <laughs> Great timing, love it. Do you want to start again, Tom, from oh. uh, <laughs> when your heart beat? Oh, okay. So to calm um, down, take a deep breath. So we were just saying... say a lot of my friends. Yeah, yes, no, saying. no, no. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of my friends are in the stage in their careers where they're nowhere near their peak earnings and they don't know what those peak earnings could be. Um, I think a big thing that's becoming apparent when you talk about the worry about money is the first time when we've all started to notice that we've all got a different amounts. You know, when we were going through university, we all had similar amounts. We were all <laughs> poor and could get a, a you know pound pint down the uh, down the student bar. 
But now we're noticing some people are getting houses, some people are at different stages in their careers, some people are taking breaks, that sort of thing. And that sort of adds its own anxieties. And you do have to remember that it is about your own life and what you need rather than trying to pin it on what your friends are doing. Peer pressure is a big part of, of financial well-being. Recently I had a situation where a friend of mine sold his business um, for quite a lot of money and I met him on a Friday night and he told me all about it and for the weekend I felt a bit weird. I mean I'd like to think I've got good financial well-being and I'm quite happy chap but I felt odd that he had all this money and if I had that money what could I do with it and the good things I could do and what might he do with it and so forth and it got to the Sunday evening when I suddenly said to myself hang on a minute the fact that he's got a load of money in the bank account doesn't actually make any difference to me whatsoever mm. but it still affected me for a couple of days I, even though I realized it was it was foolish and silly you know the peer pressure is a huge thing and if you can somehow realize that what happens to other people isn't happening to you and has no bearing on you whatsoever. Actually, I think that's quite a big release. Easier said than done, then. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, for me, I had that kind of feeling oh, a couple of years ago, and I, I, was, uh, I was living in London at the time, and I was renting, and friends around me were buying a house, and I just felt that that money was going somewhere and I wasn't getting anywhere and we're gonna sure get onto property in a bit but I started to feel like am I being left behind a bit mm. and of course I wasn't you know I, I wasn't in the right space to buy a property we were planning on moving to Bristol and that's where we are now and we, we, we have bought a place but I had this little bit of anxiety and I had to as Chris just said recalibrate I remember why I was renting and the reasons for it um, and and you do have a great relief from that yeah and I the age thing, which we touched upon earlier, makes a big difference. So actually now I'm 61, much of my future is behind me now. I've still got a good few years to go. But therefore, yeah, I could have more money tucked away, but actually I've got enough now. And for that's what you want to do. For what I want to do. And that's the key thing. I've got yes. enough for what I want to do. Of course it would be lovely to have more, but if I didn't have more, it doesn't matter because I've got enough for what I need to do. And if people who've listened to this podcast I hope have picked only one thing up over the, the series so far it's this crucial point of know thyself understand what you want and what makes you happy because then what's happening to other people is irrelevant mm. I've mentioned before uh, a book called The Antidote by a guy called Oliver Berkman he calls it a, a book for those who hate self-help books and it's all about the power not quite of negativity but of not being obsessed with positivity and one bit that he talks about, he says that a lot of human activity, if not all human activity, is motivated by the desire to feel safe and secure. This means we're perpetuating a state of wanting to be in a different state than we currently are, which you could say is a definition of being unhappy. If we could face and accept uncertainty, then we might well find greater happiness. Now this is a quote, we seek financial security, yet above a certain threshold, more money doesn't translate into more happiness and yet we still seek it. At my time of life now, I can embrace a bit of uncertainty because underneath it all, I know I'm fine. Yeah. Maybe for Tom at 29, with a kid on the way well, uh, and an evil boss, uh, <laughs> <laughs> then, then obviously his life is gonna be a lot more uncertain and he's probably not gonna wanna embrace that, you, you may tell me I'm wrong, in the same way. Um, I, I'm sorry, you are awaiting a call to say that you've got a baby just due, so I think uncertainty is the one word you have in your life. Yes, yeah, for the past, we, well, Dry, dry December, as I decided, so I could drive my wife to the uh, Lindsay to the to the hospital if need be. 
with it actually coming on the due date or past, I feel as I've already missed out though. So there's uncertainty <laughs> for you of not knowing when I can start drinking again. Yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And I went through it myself and of having, having a bit of anxiety of not having enough insurance in place of all things. I just had a bit of anxiety over it. And, um, you know, I got it all, all sorted and it's all set up. But I was thinking to myself, well, what happens if anything happened to me tomorrow? Whereas for me, with insurance, I look back at the amount of insurance, life insurance I've spent over my life and I think, well, that was all wasted. I'm still alive. Well, I'm not sure your loved ones would have said that if you were, had gone. And, exactly. and, and not only that, but you also got well-being from knowing that you could cope with the financial shock. Yeah. Which is one of the yeah. planks of well-being. And, and I never, I never have a, was having a conversation with a friend only the other day and we were talking about and naturally they all know I'm a financial planner so they decide to use me as a sort of mini surgery whenever they come and see me um, and he was talking about various things he'd just bought a house with his wife and I said oh got any life insurance on that because I knew they were pretty intertwined oh no no it was quite expensive we didn't want to spend no money on that and I could not believe what I was hearing and there's a myth for you <laughs> life insurance when you're 29 is far from expensive it's about half the price of your gym membership so something, something to take away yeah uh, another myth that I just want to get out at this point as well something that, that Tom and I have come across is that you hear people say um, oh do you know I do need to get some financial planning advice but I've got a few decisions to make first well, actually, if you do the financial planning, whether it's employing somebody like us or just buying the book and going through it, that actually enables you to make the decisions. So you don't go make those big life decisions and then get some financial advice. You do it the other way around. I would agree entirely. And uh, I, I you know, declare an interest. Clearly, I am one of your clients, Chris. But uh, I've certainly found that the advice that you've given me in the 10 years or so that we've had a business relationship has been absolutely invaluable. And I'd had financial advisors before who, yeah, maybe kind of gave me fairly sound advice on investments and things like that, but didn't really put me on the path that you've put me on, which is more to do with the well-being side of it and certainly explaining things and employing people who can explain things in a way that I understand as a non-money person. If you're going to carry on talking like that, I'm going to start paying you for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go back to Steve Wilson's comment about pensions then, shall we? Um, we hear quite a lot that uh, I don't like pensions, pensions are boring, I don't want my money tied up. And the, I'm a pensions man through and through. I've always been in the, in the game of pensions. And I get why people say this, because pensions are such a long-term decision. But the idea that they're locked up and that you can't get your hands on your pension, you can get it when it's 55 and you can get it in the form of an income. You can get it in other ways now, but there are tax implications. What we need at some point in life, we'll call it retirement, don't like that word massively, but when we stop working, when we stop having an income, we need a replacement for that income. It's income that we need in life, not big lumps of cash. So actually, pensions are great. They're very tax efficient and they provide you, I would suggest, with that subsistence level of income. No more necessarily than that. Enough income for your basic life needs and then you can use other savings that are more flexible for extra stuff. But the idea that pensions are locked up, I think, personally, is a nonsense. Well, I never used to think about pensions at all when I was young. I think probably when, probably when I was about your age, actually. Tom and I got married when I was 31. My son was born when I was 33. So round about your age, I would, was probably starting to think, oh, hang on a minute, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when I'm 65? But even then, that was that seemed like a hell of a long way away. When I was a teenager, I remember my dad saying to me when I opened my first post office savings account, oh, you need to, you know, put a bit of money aside. And I was thinking, well, what for? 
I want to spend it. Mm. Uh, and obviously your attitude to, to pensions and to saving, or certainly in my case, has changed the older I've got. Yeah. It, it's difficult. It's that balance, especially as you're younger, you, you, you seem to have more pressing things to spend your money on. You know, if you're starting a beer. family, beer is a big one, obviously, because you still... Don't judge us have, by your standards, <laughs> You still have the energy to get up the next morning. Um, and, you know, buying a house, it's all balancing acts. But what I found really interesting is that friends who were sort of in the public sector and it's just a thing that they're automatically put into are the ones that have them and are relatively engaged. That might be something to do with their unions, telling them how rubbish they are all the time, which, by the way, public sector pensions are not rubbish, um, versus friends who are in the private sector who, are, who haven't had something set up by their company. They don't tend to think about it. It's only when the, the company provides something and they sort of do a match, you know, whatever it might be, five and five, whatever it is, um, that they start to think about it. And that's why I think auto enrolment, um, which some of our listeners may have heard about, where employers are having to offer a pension that you're automatically opted into, almost that default switch will get people thinking that actually at least something is being put away. And I think that's great. I think auto, auto enrolment, from my perspective, is a very good thing because it does encourage people to save money when there's always something else you'd rather spend mm. your money on. And quite often it's a pressing thing. It might be your mortgage. It might be you know, the, your, your kids' school fees, if that's a route mm. down which you choose to go. Uh, so I think almost forcing people to put money aside and forcing, particularly forcing companies as well to make a contribution yeah. to that, I think is very, very good. But, but the idea that pensions are... Are, are, are a busted idea you, you only have to look at what you can get putting in you know you start young enough and you can put some tax relief in with a contribution and the wonders of that growing over years I think we've mentioned it in a previous podcast with Einstein's eighth wonder of the world was was the effect of compounding you, you start that off by the time you're 50 odd and you put in a reasonable amount it's a lot larger and a great pot that all of a sudden the financial options in front of you are huge Steve's point is well made about the, 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 the pensions getting stuck away and it's down to the whim of the government and we've seen massive changes to pensions over the last five years or so some of them good, some of them not so good, depending on your political uh, perspective. But when the government does keep changing the rules like this, it's hard to plan. Mm. So I do get Steve's point, but ultimately, forget the word pension. It's just a tax-efficient savings vehicle. That's all it is. Forget the word pension. It's got baggage with it. You need to put money away for your future, and there are several different ways of doing it. ISAs, pensions, and bank accounts, you know, basic things. And there are so many different ways, which is why, and I won't make this a specific plug about you innovation, but I think that's why, for somebody like me that doesn't really understand the complexities of the financial market, having a good advisor to tell you how you can do that in the most efficient way has been great for me. So let's go on to another thorny topic then, property. A, if you can hear a slight buzzing noise, that's bees in my bonnet that are starting to get woken up. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, because um, I've got a strong belief that houses are for living in. And I don't like the idea that people talking about their homes or their pensions. Buying a big house and then relying on downsizing doesn't always work. Um, Alistair Walker, who's um, tweeted us at Financial Walker, he made the point that in his experience, people get emotionally attached to their family home and downsizing becomes very difficult. So the idea that my home is my pension is greatly flawed. So we have seen the last, I don't know what, 20 years or so of house prices going up. Tom, you probably have never had a year that you've been aware that house prices haven't gone up. No, I mean, all I can think of is 2007-8 when it all stagnated. There was a bit of a drop, but it's soon bounced up 
pretty for about quickly. a week, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I've I've not known that. You, it's this idea that it's the best investment you will ever make. It's property. Well, I would argue that's because it's the only investment anyone's ever hold on to for the long term. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah a good point. And and also, uh, David, you will undoubtedly remember, like I do, perhaps the early nineties when um, I can remember there's a house local to where I was living at the time that was on the market for over a year without a single viewing. Yes, it did. It, it crashed. It was just after we moved. Fortunately, just after we moved to Bristol, and it, the market from London, the market suddenly bombed. But that time in the 80s, I remember we bought our first flat in 1986 for £30,000, sold it 18 months later for £65,000, um, bought another flat for £80,000, moved to Bristol, bought my house that I've lived in now for 20 years for £130,000, it's now worth £475,000. And you've highlighted the problem. That's what people have experienced, and they think that it will always be like that. And it can't. It just physically can't. People don't have the salaries to be able to borrow the money to be able to buy the property. Well, my son, and at the age of 28, there is no way, unless mm. I give him a leg up, that he's ever going to be able to afford to put a deposit on a house. Even so. the phrase, the property ladder... It gives this implication that there is a ladder there for you to just get on and walk up. But it's not like that. It won't always only ever go up. So, I'll, all right, well, I'm going to ask the question to somebody that doesn't understand the financial market in the same way that you two do. So from my perspective, I'm thinking, well, surely this is a bubble. Surely it's got to burst at some point. Everybody's talking about it. There's a whole generation now of my son's age in their 20s and the next generation below that who have no prospect of buying a house. So... And yet people like myself are sitting on a nice big nest egg because of the investment that we made 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. But it's only a nest egg when you sell it mm. and you downsize. If you don't ever sell it and downsize, then, which is two things, one, you have to actually want to do it. And secondly, you have to be able to sell it until that point in time, it's not a nest egg. But given that my generation are in, generally in charge of the country and how, <laughs> and, and, and how the economy works... I think you've answered your own question yes, there, David. And, 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 how, and how the economy works, it's therefore not in our collective interests to lower property prices to make it easier for our kids, because that means that the value on the property that we already have disappears. So what's the way out? The way out is going to be when interest rates change. And then it's going to be a really tough few years. But we're making predictions there, and that's a very difficult thing to or, do. Or governments could pull their finger out their backsides and start building some more houses, because there's a, there's a big supply issue as well. There uh, is, although there is a limited amount of land in the space, etc. So there's a... It's, it's a not on my back door. You know, that, yeah, that's yeah, the, that's I think that's, that's more that's the, the issue. issue. I think it, everybody, everybody will say, oh, yes, we need more houses. Oh, well, we'll build some in that field next to your house. No, not there. <laughs> not there. <laughs> yeah. So renting. Now, renting, this line is another myth for me. Renting is dead money. That's a phrase that you hear quite a lot. But absolute nonsense. Renting allows you to live in a home. Of course, you're paying money to somebody else, but you're paying money to somebody else in return for the use of something. The same as you would if you're hiring a car or anything else. And, and if you... Sorry, sorry just, just jump in. I completely agree with that. Is my example that I used earlier on about when I, was, when I was renting in London. That was a perfect time for me to be renting. I don't want to be set at any roots. I could, you know, leave with a couple of months' notice, and it's perfect. So, completely agree with with Chris that renting can be for for a lot of people, and buying a property isn't the be all and end all. And the idea that renting is dead money. Well, if you take out a mortgage, the interest is dead money. Whether you're owning it or renting it, you still have to have a roof over your head. But you can change your view of homes and houses. You know, the old expression, the Englishman home is his castle. In Japan, it's very different. 
in Japan and Tokyo, places like that, the, the houses they have are way smaller. So sharing of houses, um, staying with your family for longer, all these sorts of things are different ways of looking at the same problem. If you start off from the premise that, we, for just as an exercise, we cannot build a single extra house, let's say that that just wasn't allowed, then what would we do? We would find other ways of living together. Certainly the way in, in during my lifetime, the way in which people live together has changed enormously. We no longer live in extended family houses, which used to be the norm when I was a kid. It's now, you know, people living in single houses on, on their own, mm. uh, rather than looking to, mm. even my son's generation, the thought of... Um, perhaps getting a shared house, which is what I did when I first left home and got, 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 got a flat with a bunch of mates and rented it. They don't do that so much now. You know, they need to get their own flat on their own somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there are lots of things that could happen. The housing market is very interesting, but the idea from a financial planning perspective that, that there is a property ladder you have to get on and riches will inevitably result, uh, I'm just not sure that that's going to happen in the future. See, it's an interesting one when... when people think about property whenever I speak to someone and we talk about investments as an example they say well I don't want all of my eggs in one basket okay well that's exactly what people are doing when they're putting all of their eggs I don't want all my in eggs the in property one basket. basket I want three different bitelets yeah, right. <laughs> yeah exactly there's a just change the subject then um, David Hearn uh, who is at don't delay uh, made a, a, just a small point here ISIS season the ISA season. I don't, I don't know if this is something that's crossed your uh, radar, David, but the idea of the ISA season is that as we come towards the end of the tax year, there's a big panic, big marketing campaigns from all the investment companies to get your money in because it's ISA season. Absolute rubbish. There isn't any such thing as ISA season. Sensible financial planning is that you put your money in acro across the year, perhaps, when you've got the money available. Don't wait until middle or end of March when everybody else is doing it and the market tends to be particularly high at that time because of that very reason. Um, so the ISA season is a complete anomaly. Another one uh, at Martin Bamford. Uh, this is an interesting one. Long-term care. So we're talking about nursing homes, nursing home care and how you pay for it. And something that Martin, who's a very experienced financial planner, something he's come across a lot is that people think that they can hide their house away, perhaps by putting it under trust or giving it to the kids, and then the, the council will pay for them to go into the state-of-the-art nursing home. It's simply not the case. But the norm used to be that, you know, granny or whoever would, would stay in the house and be looked after by the family. And so we've turned our backs on that now as a society. We say, no, no, it's all about the individual. We've got to do our own thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, granny have to look after herself but actually granny can't therefore we've got this whole new industry now a whole new care industry we don't have enough people in this country to uh, who are interested in working in that industry so we're getting people coming in from other countries working in the industry um, and, and that in itself is driving a massive change in the way in which society is run and it's interesting the older generation I, I think they feel a bit of guilt whenever they take any of a younger person's time in the family I'll give a, an example Whenever I ring up my grandparents, and oh, I don't need to do that. We know you're busy. And you're thinking, no, actually, you're, you're family. Yeah. You know, we're, we're there to help. The amount that they've done for us over the years that maybe we need to start having a franker conversation about mm. helping the older generation. And uh, as I was just talking about frank conversations, another good thing to do as well is talk about money with them. Mm. You know, talk about... Um, one of the one of the important parts of financial well-being is having clarity for those who leave behind and a great worry for old people 
is that they haven't got things sorted and, pe and, and that they're going to leave a bit of a muddle. Oh, well, I have very clear conversations with my son. My wife was very forward-thinking, and so actually she left half of our house that we had together effectively in trust for my son for when I die so that I can use the money and keep the money and invest any benefits I get from selling it. But at the point at which I die, he will get half of the value of the house. So he, he knows that. And he knows that, yeah. Mm -hmm. In fact, he knows a little bit too much because he keeps <laughs> looking at me rather strangely. And he's got the pillow in his hand. Ready to... <laughs> yeah. No, but so, so but that's interesting because we, so we have that, we have those honest discussions. So he knows, hopefully he'll get more as well, but he knows absolutely that he will have that as an inheritance. But then part of him, I can see him going, oh, well, how long am I going to have to wait? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> years, uh, Nick, years <laughs> and years and years. Uh, at Rohan Sivajoti, at Postcard Rohan, he talks about mortgage advisors. And this is a good one. This is, a, this is one I've heard loads. Um, and he tweeted, uh, one of the myths that he would like to bust is that the estate agent says, I have to use their in-house mortgage advisor. You don't. Let's just get that one absolutely yeah. clear. Um, likewise, you sometimes hear people give the impression when they go to get a mortgage that they have to buy life assurance from a certain provider but through the mortgage broker or their estate agent counterpart. Not true. You don't have to whatsoever. But I would then question whether it is even necessary to buy life assurance. And this is perhaps controversial, but if you buy a house and you get a mortgage, why do you have to have a repayment vehicle at all to pay your mortgage off? So you used to be the endowment. These days it might be a repayment mortgage or what have you. And so at one point, some point in time, in 25 years' time, you've now got no mortgage and you're completely free of debt with your house. So what? You're not going to do anything differently with your life because you're still going to live in that house. If you don't pay the mortgage off at all, keep the house. Maybe it goes up in value, maybe it doesn't. One day in 30 years' time you die, the proceeds of the sale of the house pays the mortgage off. Well... I take your point, but certainly speaking as somebody who has paid his mortgage off, there's a psychological aspect to that which is which is massive. That feeling of, okay, this house now is mine. Whatever happens to me, they can't take my house away from me. And if they do, or if you know, I get so skint that I've got no income coming in, this is mine, and I can sell it. And you know, even if I don't want to downsize, at least I can. And so there is something that I think touches a lot of people once you choose to go down the property owning road is once you actually own it fully yourself, that's a great feeling, irrespective of whether or not it makes financial sense. I absolutely understand that. And like I said, I'm being a bit controversial in suggesting it, but it's not necessarily the case. It's an emotional thing, an emotional decision to pay for It is an emotional decision, but then we talked in a previous podcast uh, when we were talking about fundraising, about how emotion is a very important part of fundraising. And the whole thing in financial well-being that I've learned through all the podcasts that we're doing is that you cannot take emotion out of money. And I think if you try and do that, um, then you're in for trouble. Agree completely, I agree. It, know thyself, how important is it to you? But I am suggesting that maybe there could be some people out there for whom thinking of things a little bit differently might just free, us some, free up some cash now. Right, we have to stop now because uh, uh, I've put the entire value of my house on the 330 at Chepstow on a horse <laughs> at 5 to 1. So I need to get off and see how that's done. So remember, if you think that Tom should have a pay rise uh, at Finwell Being, uh, let us know, let us know uh, your views on that. 
Actually, it's been a really interesting conversation today, a really interesting chat. About and Thomas managed to get through it with only one telephone call from Lindsay. Exactly. Really good and, and on behalf of the listening nation, good luck, Tom, because Thank by you. the time this goes out, you'll be stuck at home with this child going, oh, I wish I could get back to work. <laughs> it's been really fascinating. Thanks very much, Tom. Thanks very much, Chris. We'll see you next time for the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. Thank you. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at David underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. Seems like everybody's got a price. I wonder how they sleep at night. When the sale comes first and the truth comes second. <laughs>